Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, welcome to the Joma podcast. My name is Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and proud member of Joma. And I'm super excited to be here today with Dr. Georgiana Rothschild. Hi. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. Dr. Rothschild is a physician who specializes in preventative medicine. She has spent her career helping people stay healthy before they get sick. Over the years, she has continued to gain experience and expertise in teaching mindfulness and other coping techniques to help her patients manage the stress and the health effects of that stress. Through individual patient visits, as well as group sessions, Dr. Jordana Rothschild has dedicated her practice to promoting mental and physical wellness and reversing stress-related diseases, incorporating mind-body medicine into her treatment of acute and chronic disease. Dr. Rothschild holds an MD from the Tel Aviv University Sackler School of Medicine and has studied mind-body medicine at the Benson Henry Institute for the Mind-Body Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital Harvard Medical School. She also holds a master's in public health from Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. She is board certified in general preventive medicine and public health, as well as occupational and environmental medicine, and is a fellow of the American College of Preventative Medicine. And this is super exciting. She is the founder of a lifestyle medicine practice launching soon called Alpine Health. So this is so exciting and so cutting edge. And I'm so excited to be here with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. So let's dive right in. What I really want to know is how did you get involved in lifestyle medicine? And I want to go back and have you tell me your personal story because I know that it's important. Going way back to the very beginning, um, I already knew that I wanted to be a physician. And Mm. early on, when I was a college student, I actually was very, very stressed out. I've always been kind of a type A, hardworking, overachieving, always busy kind of person. And I I jumped into college with that pre-med mentality and I was super stressed out. And my first semester of college, I actually ended up being diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. Mm-hmm. And I made my way to different physicians before finding the right one. And my doctor said to me, your disease is influenced by stress and it's influenced by your lifestyle and your diet. And you have got to get a handle on it. And he prescribed yoga for me, believe it or wow. not. Wow. And I tried it and it worked, it worked. So over the course of the next few years, I was able to really manage my disease with the help of a physician, but also incorporating lifestyle medicine into my own personal health and my own life. Um, 
fast forward a little bit to medical school where I had a whole new level of stress placed upon me. And at this point, I already had the tools. I already knew that I had to keep control of my lifestyle or else everything would just overwhelm me and I would end up in bad shape again. So it was at that point, my first year of medical school that I took up dancing ballet and mm. I became a vegetarian and I made sure I was sleeping eight hours a night. Yes. Even as a medical student. Wow. And I, I just live that way. That's, I need to live that way in order to keep myself healthy. So that is very much informed how I treat my patients. When my patients come to me with whatever health issue they have, it's always inseparable from the way we live our lives. So it's impossible to treat somebody just looking at one little tiny body part. You have to look at the whole person. You have to look at everything that's impacting their health. And when you do that, you can get kind of a big picture and help them feel great, right? The goal, the goal of all of this, the reason we all became doctors wasn't just to give antibiotics for sicknesses. Of course, that's wonderful. And I'm glad that we can help people feel better. But the big picture is we want our patients to feel great. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be productive. We want them to enjoy their lives. That is amazing. So how do you work that into your actual medical practice? I mean, it's great. You know, you were able to change your, you know, the way your lifestyle is. How does that work into your medical practice? I ask. I take the time mm. and I ask and I listen. So when a patient comes in and tells me that, I don't know, let's say someone has neck pain or back pain, I don't just say, you know, I will ask questions about the origin of the pain. Where does it hurt? How does it hurt? All of the typical questions you would expect. And many times I will prescribe something for the pain or I'll send them to physical therapy if it's an injury. But then I'm also going to take the time and ask, what were you doing when it started hurting? What did your life look like when it started hurting? And then they're going to tell me a story. Everybody has a story. And nobody just has a disease. I mean, yes, you have the, the easy stuff, right? If somebody gets a cold, they got a cold. Right. But even if somebody got a cold, nine times out of 10, they haven't been sleeping well and they're stressed and they haven't been eating well. And that's half the reason they got sick. Not to discount germ theory. Of course, right. there are germs involved. But we become susceptible to illness when we're not taking care of ourselves. That's what our mothers always said, right? Your resistance is low. <laughs> yeah, listen, they weren't so dumb, our mothers. Right, right. So what do you tell people then? What approaches do you take? I mean, you I find out, okay, you find out the connection, then what? I ask. I don't tell. Mm -hmm. I always ask. They are always going to guide their own treatment plan, I have found, especially when it comes to lifestyle medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, nobody wants to be told. They want to make their own terms and then be supported rather than told. So I'm never going to tell somebody lose weight or stop smoking or whatever thing is on my checklist. I'm going to let them tell me, I'll say, you know, what, what are the things that you feel like you need to work on in order to be the healthiest version of you? And then they're going to make a plan. And then I'll say, you know, okay, what are the things that you feel like you can do to get there? And, and we'll go from there. And it's a partnership. It's teamwork. We do mm. this together. 
that that really that reminds me of a conversation I had just the other day with a family. I mean, it was different. The child wasn't sleeping well, and I really had to pay attention to well, what do the parents do? They come home late. You know, the child can't go to bed early. It's easy to say your child should be asleep by 7 p.m. or whatever it is. Not working when a family comes home at eight. Right. Right. So I think right. what you mean is working working with their lifestyle that they have already. Right. I would also think it's also related to motivation, right? Yeah, listen, nobody's going to do something they're not ready to do. Mm -hmm. And a little step would be, might be huge. Well, and it's also, people are going to do the things that make them feel better. Mm -hmm. So if you can give them a tiny step and they do it and they actually feel great, then they're going to keep doing it. But I think it's hard, though, because I think you have to break patterns. When you say do something that feels better, well, watching TV might make me feel better in the short run. Eating chocolate might make me feel better in the short run. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and that's why I kind of look at all of the different factors. But for mm. me, I have found, not always, but in many cases, all roads lead to stress. And so can, can we talk a little bit about what st how stress impacts on your body? Because we didn't really roll that back far enough. Let's dive right into that. Because I think, I think it's, it's not really fully understood. You know, we can say, oh, your resistance is down or stress is bad, but data, what is actually stress doing there, to us? There's, yeah, actually, we, we, don't, we don't understand every single little bit about it. It's still being mm -hmm. studied, but there is a lot that we do understand. We know mm -hmm. a lot. There is a huge body of research already out there um, showing us what stress does to our body. So, um, and it affects multiple pathways. I, I can't really, I don't want to get into every single one of them, mm -hmm. but the basic gist of it is we've all heard, or many of us have heard of our fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. When we get into a really stressful situation, we think about the the, the typical picture of the primitive caveman gut reaction to danger. And when our body is exposed to danger, it sets off a physiological chain of events that causes chemical changes in our body. It causes lots of different things to happen in our body. So think about, um, or sometimes we also call it an adrenaline rush. How many of us ex have experienced a moment of intense stress and you just get this rush where everything is moving faster. Your thoughts are racing. Your heart is racing. Your muscle tone is going to go up. Your breathing is going to go up. Your body is actually changing itself in response to that stressor so that you can rise to the challenge and survive rather than be caught napping in a dangerous situation. So your body is also in response to stress going to shut down anything that's unnecessary. So again, think about it. When you get your adrenaline rush, now's not the time you wanna take a nap. So your body is gonna shut off anything related to sleep. Now's not the time to stop and have a snack. So your body is going to shut down your digestive tract. It doesn't wanna eat right now, it's gotta run. So your body's doing all the things you need to be doing to survive, which is great when your life is in danger. The problem is our primitive, the primitive part of our brain isn't that smart. It's a series of reflexes. It's a series of these instant reactions, and it doesn't know how to tell the difference between a true life-threatening danger or 
a kid screaming while you're trying to work and you're stuck on a deadline. And so your body is still going to jump to that same physiological reaction when you're experiencing final exams, for example, as it is when you're running away from a bear that's trying to kill you. But that doesn't really serve us. That doesn't make Mm -hmm. us feel good. And that's a big part of the reason that when we're experiencing stress, we can't sleep. It messes with how we eat. We either overeat or we don't eat food that's nutritious or we lose our appetite or it can mess with our digestion. It causes that increase in muscle tone. So we get our shoulders end up in our necks because we're so tense. (laughs) Everybody's relaxing their shoulders now, right? (laughs) (laughs) And and all of those things that touch it and our mind starts racing. Right? How many times are you laying in bed and you're trying to fall asleep and you can't shut your brain off? That's because your body doesn't know the difference between the normal day-to-day stress that you're experiencing and life and death true stress. And then that that when when we go through that day in and day out, every single day, jumping to that stress response, it creates a pathway in our brain where our brain remembers it. Think about water spilling down an area of dirt. The first time it spills down, it can spill anywhere, but then it's going to kind of create this little groove. And the more times you pour water down, the deeper that groove is going to get so that from now on, every time any water spills there, it's automatically going to go into that deep groove. And then it's this vicious cycle. The more times it goes down that groove, the deeper the groove gets and so on and so forth. The same thing happens in our brain pathways. The more often we repeat a behavior, the more entrenched that behavior becomes because our brain is automatically going to go there. So the more often we respond to a stressor with that stress response, the more entrenched we get and the harder it is to break that cycle. The good news is that we can break it and there are tried and true and evidence-based methods for creating different pathways. So just as what I just described to you is called the stress response, there's also something called the relaxation response, which is the exact opposite. It's a term that was coined by Dr. Benson of the Benson Henry Institute. And he's been studying this response for decades. What we can do is through intentionally focusing our brains, we can trigger the opposite of the stress response. So where our thoughts might be racing, we can intentionally slow down our thoughts. And then in response, our body's gonna react to that calmness, that relaxation by reversing the stress response and our blood pressure will go down and our heart rate will go down and we will breathe a little bit slower and better and our digestion will resume as normal and our muscle tone will start to relax and maybe our thoughts won't race quite as much and we can finally fall asleep. And so that's amazing. Um, I'm thinking though that for someone who is struggling with anxiety, depression, stress, that this is an adjunct, but not instead of various forms of therapy, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. This is one tool of many to help us feel better in any given moment. Do you have any examples of these? Yeah, I'm sure. leading you because I know you do. Sure. <laughs> you, you, showed you, me. you can practice would, on me. 
Would you like to try one right now with me? Yes, I do. Sure. So this one is called a grounding exercise. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of thing that I like to do when I find my thoughts are running away with me. You ever find those moments where you're just not here? You're uh-huh. either rehashing something that happened this morning and going over it over and over and over in your head. I can't believe he said that. I can't believe she did that. And you just rehash that thing that happened in the past. Um, or alternatively, something that's about to happen that you're worrying about. Mm-hmm. How am I going to do this? How am I going to get that done? But you're not really in the present moment and your thoughts have just kind of run away with you. So this activity is called grounding. And the purpose of it is to bring us to the present moment. So you don't need any tools for this. You don't need anything special. You don't have to be lying down. You can be sitting, you can be standing, you can be in the middle of whatever it is you're doing. And you just take a moment and notice your surroundings. We're both sitting right now. So you can relax in your seat and notice how you feel in your chair, notice your body. And now we're gonna use our five senses to bring us to the present moment. So looking around the room and notice just a couple of things that you see. You could pick two, three, two things, three things, five things, and just acknowledge a few items that you see when you look around the room. Super messy, there's lots of stuff. <laughs> you, could, you, you, you don't have to judge them, just notice them. If you want, you could hone in on something they have in common, like maybe just in your mind, notice everything that's blue or, hmm. or everything that's soft. It can be anything. And then you're gonna move to your sense of hearing and just notice a couple of different sounds that you hear. It can be the sound of my voice, mm-hmm. It can be the soft buzz of the computer, your air conditioning, maybe some traffic outside. And just notice what you hear. And now bringing your attention to your sense of touch. What are the things that are touching you right now? The back of your seat, your feet on the floor. Maybe you're touching your pen or your computer. Maybe you feel a breeze touching your skin, just noticing your sense of touch. And moving on to your sense of smell. What does it smell like where you are? What are the things you notice? Maybe someone's cooking. Maybe it smells like cleaning supplies. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're outside and you smell pollution. Maybe you're outside somewhere nice and you smell trees and grass and leaves. And then moving your attention to your sense of taste. And maybe you taste something in your mouth, but maybe not. It's also important to notice the lack of something. It's okay to just notice the nothing. And that's it. And now you can bring your attention back and you just spent a couple of minutes in the present moment. That's really good for um, obsessive thinkers like um, me. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. 
Because sometimes yeah, you do, you just go round and round, like I said, either pre with the anticipatory anxiety or going over something in your mind. Well, now if there are issues or problems that you're trying to solve or face, you can approach them again with intention and with clear thoughts rather than with a racing mind. It doesn't solve your problems. It doesn't make them go away. It just clears your head. And it the key is that it takes you out of your stress response. It tones everything down. It takes everything down a notch so that you're not reacting impulsively and in a place of stress and agitation. You can approach things with a clear head. That's helpful. But I think it's important to say that you would have to practice that because if your you know, routine is to go into, say, obsessive thinking or anger or whatever it is, and you don't do this over and over because you taught it to me and then I didn't practice it. <laughs> now I got to go remember to practice it. Well, let me ask you a question. If you never, ever exercised a day in your life and I took you to the gym and worked you out with a trainer for 20 minutes and had you lifting weights for 20 minutes and then you went home and never, ever, ever lifted weights ever again. Would you say that you're in great shape and your muscles are strong? No, of course not. You have none whatsoever. Not. You Doing it once doesn't do, I mean, it feels great in the moment, right? If I go to the gym right now, I'm going to feel terrific right now for one hour. And that's great. But then I'm going to go right back to the out of shape, whatever I was before I went to the gym, unless I maintain a steady and consistent practice. This is the exact same thing. You have to make it part of your life. You have to make it routine. And that doesn't mean you have to do this all day, every day, mm -hmm. but setting a timer on your phone once a day to just breathe for two minutes can easily become a practice that gets incorporated. And again, remember we talked about how we create those brain pathways for stress. The, the deeper entrenched your stress response pathways are, the longer it's going to take to undo them. But at the same time, by doing this over and over and over again, we can create new brain pathways so that in the future, when we are exposed to stress, our automatic reaction without having to think about it is going to be to jump back to that relaxation response instead of the stress response. Right. And something's better than nothing. I mean, I'm thinking about exercise. You know, when I first started exercising, I went once a week, twice a week, whatever the recommendation was, I wasn't there. And now I walk every day, but it took a while to get there. And it was okay to not be so consistent in the beginning because it was a step forward. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think we tend to Absolutely. be very black and white and we're like, oh, forget it. This doesn't work. Like I tried it and it just didn't work. And I think that it's okay to have one step forward and, and two steps back as you try to do something new. Absolutely. Life is not black and white. Life is messy. Mm -hmm. Life is ups and downs. Life is a lot of complicated stuff. You can't, I would never want to simplify that. And you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have days where you try to practice the relaxation response and you're too wound up and you just can't get it. That's fine. We're all human. We're all human. Right. Believe me, I lose my temper too. Right. I mean, <laughs> that's just ask my right. kids. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a tool that you don't have if you don't build it. Exactly. Exactly. This is not a cure-all. This is just one more tool and a yet one more way that maybe we can make people feel just a tiny bit better on a day-to-day -day basis. No, I think it's great. And again, some things will work for some people, not for others. Like when everybody tells me I should be doing this yoga breathing, like that for me 
doesn't work, but yoga and dance are a big thing for you. So everybody's different. Of course. And that's okay. Like I like to walk. Walking for me takes me into my zone. You know, well, the, the world would be so boring if we were all the same, wouldn't it? Yes, it would be. So besides these kind of relaxation approaches, what else would be um, something you would say would be um, specific to lifestyle medicine? Life, so I wouldn't say it would be specific. I would just say it's I mean, like characteristic. So there are. If you look at lifestyle medicine, there are six kind of pillars of lifestyle mm -hmm. medicine. So those would include nutrition. And I don't mean a specific diet. Mm -hmm. I just mean noticing what we eat and trying to fuel our bodies in a way that makes us feel good. Exercise or movement, which is something different for everyone. Sleep is a big one. When we don't sleep, we don't feel well and we don't react well and it influences everything else stress as we mentioned um substance use you know we haven't really talked about drug use which is a bigger topic but also smoking and alcohol which i keep seeing all of these reports that people are drinking more than ever before right now with the pandemic it's not surprising <laughs> i know it's not right. i know and it's it's understandable but again, we need to have that awareness of how much are we drinking, why are we drinking, and what are things that we can do to make ourselves feel better? I mean, the common denominator to all of these things is what do I need to do so that I can feel good? Mm. When I'm well-rested, I feel good. When I'm eating nutritious food, I feel good. When I'm getting exercise, when I'm not stressed, all of those things, and that's for all of us. We all feel better when we're healthy, but it's a vicious cycle because we all stress eat or don't sleep enough or oversleep or drink more or smoke more or whatever our thing is. We, it's much harder to do that thing when we don't feel good. So when you feel good, it's much easier to have healthy lifestyle behaviors, which in turn makes us feel better. But when you're not in a good place, it's really hard to have good lifestyle behaviors and to be motivated to do all of those things because you don't feel good. So it's, it's kind of a vicious cycle. And where I see my role is in helping lift people out of that cycle. If we can break that cycle at any one of those points, then everything else kind of falls into place. I really like this and I like the idea of meeting them where they're at because I think, like I said, people can be very black and white. I'm either a healthy person or I'm not a healthy person and oh well, and that's that's not true. I mean, I can't help but I bring this up in pretty much every talk. I bring up this health at every size, intuitive eating because <laughs> it fits, it meshes so beautifully with what you're saying. Like I think people may think, well, I'm just, you know, overweight and I know someone who likes to use the fat word. She, I, I feel like I can't, I feel like it sounds rude, but she says, I'm a fat person and that's the word I want to use. And they feel like I can't be healthy because I'm not, I'm just not. And that's not true that you can be right. And you can start with respecting your body, eating healthier, right? Yeah, so exercising, so, you know, for for movement, like when you talk about eating, you're talking about you, you specifically said not dieting. What I'm getting at is that we, we tend to be very rigid with our health approaches, doctors, and I like this, that this is more 
partnering and this is more meeting people where they're at as opposed to this is the black you know the complete right way to be and either you're in that zone or you're not yeah i just i just want to see where you are today and what can i do to help you feel just a little bit better tomorrow than you did today that's the goal mm -hmm. no i really really like that i think that that's great can we give some examples of how this would work like it doesn't have to be a real scenario. We're never going to tell anybody's, you know, stories in any identifiable way. Right, right. But just some kind of clinical vignette so people could see how this could play out. Um, sure. Let's say I have somebody who gets migraines. Migraines is one of my favorites because migraines have lots of different triggers. So let's say I have somebody who has migraines and um, and that's why they came to see me. You know, they came because they need treatment for their headaches. So at that point, I'm going to ask about all of those different lifestyle things that we've talked about. And let's say I find out that um, one of this person's triggers happens to be red wine. Some people get, get migraines in response to red wine. So I'm going to talk to that person about their wine consumption. And I'm going to ask them, do you feel better or worse when you drink red wine? And then we'll get into why they're drinking all this red wine. And maybe since COVID, they haven't been able to see their friends and their kids are in Zoom school and driving them crazy all day. And they've put on 30 pounds because they're home eating all day and they're working from home. And so they're sedentary. And so they're sitting at their desk all day long. And now they also have back pain because they're sitting at this desk and they're putting on weight and they feel terrible about themselves. And you know, it's all those different components that are now coming together. But the entry point to coming to the healthcare system was the headache. Mm. So at that point, so to me, uh, at that point, I'm going to ask this person, of all the things that you just told me, which is bothering you the most? You know, you came here because of the headaches, but we just talked about all these other things. Which one would you like to focus on? And let's say... They say, well, really the issue, the biggest issue that has me feeling miserable is loneliness because I'm cooped up with my family and I'm sick of them and I love them, but I'm sick of them. Mm. And I really miss my friends and I'm isolated because this pandemic is really not enjoyable. So then we're going to talk about, okay, what are the things that we can do to help you cope with that? And we'll go from there and maybe the real issue or the real area where we can provide the most help is in improving social connectedness and improving a sense of purpose. And then we can also treat the headaches. We can do both. Right, it's not either or. It's, it's not either or, but the key here is using that, that access point of whatever the physical complaint is as a key to getting the whole story. What does your life look like? That's mm -hmm. what I always want to know. Tell me, tell me about your life. Tell me who you are. Tell me what your day looks like. And then that paints a picture and helps me target what are the things that this person can do to feel better. And now let's say she starts having an outdoor, socially distant walking date with her neighbor. Well, now that's improved her social connectedness and she's walking. So that's going to help her back pain. That's going to improve everything that's caused by the sedentary behavior. Behavior That's going to improve her mood. And now she's not going to feel the need to drink as much. And then every, everything else kind of falls into place. 
this is really amazing, but it sounds like it takes time. <laughs> I'm wondering. Yeah. Yes, it takes time. It takes it's, time. You know, this is the problem with modern medicine, right? I mean, we're not given a lot of time in a standard medical practice and the instinct is to give a drug. And if you look at say migraines, um, which I have, so I understand. Um, and I understand how they're so entangled in, in so many other things. You're not necessarily gonna get that. You're gonna get, you know, the newest medication for migraines, which if you look at the data for treatments for migraines, it's not that great. There is not one magic bullet out there for migraines. The fact that they have so many new treatments kind of tells you that. And also if you look at the placebo response rate, it's high. Right. It's really which tells, high. Which tells you that there's a big lifestyle and psychosocial and stress in, in com factor complicating our treatment of migraines. Which you're actually addressing. You're actually addressing the underlying issues that are triggers rather than just trying to throw a medication at it. But what could we do as, as physicians who don't have the time? I mean, I'm presuming that you are, your practice by definition <clears throat> of a lifestyle medicine by definition means you will have time. Yes, yes, I will, I will take time. Which is so and precious, which is so precious. <laughs> We can, we can get into a whole different conversation for another time about the entire healthcare system and the way it's set up, but that's not for today. We're not about to fix that. We're not about to fix that. So say you are a physician, you know, like me who I'm in a practice, you know, where we have to see patients, you know, with relatively short, I mean, I'm actually very fortunate. I don't have that little time. There are practices that have a lot less time than I have. And that's, that's really helpful for me to have enough time to be able to delve a little deeply like I did into this family with the child with the sleep issues. Um, but what if you didn't? What could a physician like that do? Increase awareness, mention it. I don't, I don't think everyone is gonna have time to delve into the entire lifestyle picture. Mm -hmm. But even just saying to our patients, when you go home, I want you to think about your nutrition, your exercise, your social connectedness, your stress, your sleep, and jot down in a journal how you think those factors impact your health and bring it to me at your next visit. You don't need to ask them all those questions in the visit. They can mm -hmm. write it down for you and then you can kind of glance at it at their next visit and say, I see you wrote these things. Pick one. We're going to talk about it for three minutes. That's a good tip. Also, you can just refer them out to, you know, you can mention to them things like yoga, you know, if there are things that you can come yeah, up with quickly. I always, I always want to be careful with those because it's really important to explain that these are not cures. These are not mm -hmm. quick fixes. Mm -hmm. And these things are complicated and intertwined. Right. And I have that conversation a lot with a lot of the disorders like IBS. I see a lot of uh, patients with irritable bowel syndrome, and that is a classic mind-body disorder. Right. And the first thing I say is exactly that, that there's a lot of intertwined factors going on here. There is no quick fix. There's no magic test. There's no magic medication. And I think that that takes the expectations, you know, it makes them realistic upfront, which I think is important, but right. also to not just expect the doctor who may not have that much time to be the everything. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I could refer to yes. you. I could refer to you and say, hey, I know a great lifestyle doctor, but I'm not a lifestyle doctor. I can't become one in a relatively short 
Well, that's why we all work together as a team. Right. No, I mean, I think lifestyle medicine could be a good, a good place to refer people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think with that, I'm going to end because I'm really looking forward to what you do with Alpine Health. And I really love all that we learned and talked about today. And I'm going to say to be continued because there's so many other aspects of this that we really didn't touch upon. This was really like just an introduction to lifestyle medicine. Sure. I'm, I'm happy to come back. Thank you so much for doing this with me. All right. Thank you. Be well. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.